Welcome to What's Next Weekly. It's a weekly podcast about uh, the West Wing Weekly, where we recap uh, one episode at a time. And this week, we are recapping episode nine, The Shortlist, uh, with Ronald Klain. Uh, he was the chief of staff for um, Vice Presidents uh, Gore and Biden, um, I believe. Um, and for the most part, uh, the episode, I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed, I definitely enjoyed the the interview at the end because... Um, my knowledge of American history basically stops when I'm in school. Uh, I don't remember much of what happened when I was in, you know, uh, elementary school, high school. So I got, uh, I get a little, a uh, few things filled in um, about like the the Reagan administration. So I just looked this up. He rings a bell. I, I read a lot of um, political books, and so I've heard his name in those circles before. Ron Klain is the current chief of staff for President Biden. Oh, okay. So I I just looked that up this afternoon because I was like, is he still yes, he is still, he's still like, around. He's okay. in the heart he's in the heart of it and the thick of it. And that just uh really blew me away because he was such a terrific guest on this show. Um and that same guy is apparently now trying to run the the Biden White House. And so he's he's Leo. Uh he's he's Leo now, and so Kind of a neat thing, you know. It doesn't always happen that way. Where like your guests got more important since last time he was here. Okay, that's uh, and that's good, and that's good to know. I, I was just thinking today or yesterday. I was just thinking today. I'm like, I don't actually even know who. I don't know who the Secretary of State is, and I thought, uh, why is that? Anyway, so I like uh, I'm gonna have to, um, uh, uh, brush up on, on current events as well. So basically. Uh, American history, starting from the 90s up to now, I have no idea what's going on. Is that right? Well, good enough. I mean, the West Wing is a better version uh, of it, and so you might as well just know that. Uh, yeah, that's probably going to uh, help me sleep better at night anyway. <laughs> uh, they start off the, uh, the episode. Rishi uh, reads the NBC synopsis, and, it's, and to my memory, this is the first time he reads the synopsis from NBC uh, which is only notable because eventually he uh, they bag on the synopses and uh, they switch over to Rishi, uh, his synopsis. It is a great little thing they've picked up about synopses. Um, some of them are fine, but some of them are comically bad. Even uh, yeah, wherever, uh, Netflix or something, If you sometimes if you know the content and you see somebody wrote that. And it's so strange how they can get something so wrong they obviously <laughs> got they knew something about it but then they just you know really maladapted it um you know a a very tragic storyline will be made to sound like it's going to be a humorous tale or something like that and so uh i like how rishi uh writes his own storyline he seems to be willing to do extra work to to make the show better melina does uh say he liked this episode of the west wing um because it had the uh, only two storylines he said uh, <laughs> gave them uh gave them room to breathe um uh, and i think they they uh they bring up in contrast uh the state dinner that had like you know four or five going on at the same time although i think in the end they basically like that too uh, i think what they like is they just like we get like a variety of structures uh, with the West Wing. It's not. It's not like. And in fact, as soon as I was starting to think about that, I was like, "Oh, unlike Law and Order, where, where you know it's always going to hit these beats all the time." Uh, and in fact, they they did bring up Law and Order uh, as a contrast too. Yes, I feel like once again, and this seems like it's three weeks in a row where Melina kind of gets off on the wrong foot. Um, 
he does say he likes these two storylines, but then he says this is not a great standalone episode because I don't know. I, I'm not quite. Oh, it's it's sort of you know more character driven type stuff rather than than things happening. And so, and then um, it's the beginning. It sounds more like it's the beginning of uh, of an arc, which it is. Yeah, but I was thinking about that point, and it's great, but I think it functions as a um, unit um, really well. So, you know, the Leo storyline, it's going to be a long-running storyline, but the answer in this episode is they're going to stand by Leo (laughs) and fight. First, you find out that Leo's, you know, got this problem, and then everybody comes together and says, hey, we're going to fight this. So the conclusion is, you know, Leo's not going to just be shown the door he's got everybody's got his back and so i i think it's really great um i i don't agree that it's not a good standalone episode so like unless you don't like seeing all of leo's friends get his back when his career is on the line if that's not you know good enough um then like to me that's like once again big enough stakes so yeah and i i think this episode does have a strong ending that's really the only i think that might be the time when i I feel like well this is not a great standalone episode where I don't feel like things are resolved well enough, but there, uh, there's great resolution um, uh, between like the president and the uh, and Josh uh, standing shoulder to shoulder, you know, in Leo's defense. So yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think it's, as for a standalone episode, it's fine. I know it has promise for for things to come, which I'm also happy with. This was one of the first shows I remember that I felt like started doing that. You know, after this serialization got to be the norm. But before this, Mm. shows almost all were kind of written as a one-off, and an arc was more unusual. Uh, So Star Trek or something, for example, it was every every show was totally episodic, and I guess that's because that's how TV was back in the day. You know, somebody may not have seen last Wednesday's episode, so you didn't want them to have to know what happened last time. But um, nowadays, everybody likes it to be all linked together and and i i remember liking that that they had a richer you know a multi <laughs> multi-episode arcs that actually continue on for a long time like see leo's substance abuse continues to be an issue late into the whole uh the whole show yeah no absolutely i it's funny that you mentioned star trek uh as being uh really just kind of episodic each one's supposed to stand on its own i and i remember Oh, when the next generation came out, that there was supposed to be less mm. of that, but it just ended up being more more of the of the same, which it helps in syndication and it helps you know pre the DVR world uh, and uh, Netflix, right? No, you're right. Uh, DS Nine was a step forward. Two hours later, fixed by like one season. Uh, in between seasons, they jump into the far far future. Well, uh, let, let's keep talking about um, you know. Uh, <laughs> Let's go back to our, our podcast about Star Trek. Right. You know what, actually, we probably should just jump right into. They play a clip from the, from the, from the episode of Sam and Josh and Toby saying, who to man? Oh, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, so painful. Oh, oh, it really is. And the way uh, Harishi describes it as, um, if you've seen it a few times, you know, you know it's coming. And it's just very painful. And so I, I felt a lot of shared humanity, uh, realizing there was all these people, uh, all these West Wing fans having that same reaction, like, <laughs> oh gosh, like, you know, you love these guys, but it's just, it's and brutal. It, it, I don't... it just goes on for 
ever. Like once or twice would have been enough, but uh, man. Right. And the, it, then the idea that it's like a thing throughout the whole Oval Office staff, because Miss Landingham says it. She says, who's the men? Yes. And then the president inquires, like, which one of you is? The, and you're just like, oh, my gosh. Like, come on. This is this is really it's juvenile. It's really it's funny. And, no, yes. and the, that thing of everybody getting embarrassed uh you know for for what they're doing seems uh you know it's it's true it's it's kind of a remarkable moment it's funny people have different reactions to some things but some things everybody has the same reaction to and there's just something about that moment that is just like uh, really embarrassing to uh, it's to the point where i i it's the kind of thing i may have to leave the room while it while it uh while it plays yeah it's a it's definitely a misstep in the in the comedy of uh of of uh, Sorkin. Uh, although uh, uh, one good thing that comes out of it is uh, Melina calling um, Whitford's new Simeon celebration uh, a quote, uh, priapic gorilla. <laughs> Can you unpack that sentence? I didn't take time to look up either Simeon oh, or the yeah, P word. Uh, yes, uh, Simeon is, I think, is just an uh, um, ape, uh, ape like celebration. Because so, uh, in the previous in a previous episode, <laughs> he like yes. bangs his chest, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, here's his new Simeon uh, celebration, uh, Priapic uh, Gorilla. Um, the, the thing, I couldn't give you an exact definition of uh, Priapic, but uh, Priapus uh, was a, um, a figure from mythology who's usually depicted with a, um, with a giant penis. Um, <laughs> this is where we get the, uh, the medical malady um, Priapism. Where... I, thought, I thought you were going to say with a giant gift card, you know, from... <laughs> Uh, no, no, different sort of, different sort of gift. Uh, anyway, yes, uh, that's, that's what I'm here for. I want to hear great, great wordplay from Rishi and Molina. All right. Yes. No, that was funny. That was a good, I, I figured Simeon had something to do with, you know, monkeys, but monkeys, yeah. uh, that, that was, that was a nice, that was a nice sentence. And, uh, Whitford does seem to have that move of going to yeah I, I like the phrase frat boy elation that was a nice nice way to to describe them and so yeah the, you know the the I I forced myself to watch the scenes because I realized like these are serious actors I think at some point don't Brad Whitford and um, Rob Lowe do a chest bump yes <laughs> I'm like I, how I I. Uh, but hey, they're they're paying him a they're paying him a salary, and so they're going to do what they're told to do, right? No, and I just I was like thinking about that moment, that moment when you're like, all right, like we're doing this, like, and I think yes. they even like jump a little bit, like the athletes do, um, and it's really, I just think, wow, like you, you know, you guys have bought in, and every, everybody, everybody in all the scenes, like nobody is you know doubling over. So the um uh, the the bring up while they um they they're celebrating their win the over the top celebration if that shows up in the first act in the first scene you know that it, they're going to get their you know ankles out uh, cut from under them uh which is what happens and actually rishi i think uh, kind of likes uh, likes seeing that he said he loved the episode where um uh where they got served a lot of defeats uh in the in the previous episode and he liked to see the president getting trounced really by the outgoing justice the justice says something like you know i was waiting for a democrat but i got you I agree. That's an interesting point. You know, it makes me think of how people are kind of hungry for uh, conversations that sound truthful. And you wonder if these people that we read about 
who are doing these things that we may have criticisms of, does anybody ever tell them the truth? You know, in a context where they have to hear it. And so um, Rishi likes that. And and Sorkin does that. I was just thinking about how you – he uses his characters often, you know, in the role of being taught a lesson. So, you know, it implies that they kind of screwed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, then, you know, but you still, you still like the character even though they've made this mistake. And I guess the episode in a way is about correcting that. Uh, mistake of some of some sort it's a, yeah it's just interesting to me that that's a way you know you can uh, tell the story which is you know show your character making an error and then learning about it from uh from other people because you know bartlett does that uh frequently rishi brings that up that the thing about bartlett is he is always affected you know somebody when somebody speaks truth to him he gets a little touchy but he always internalizes it yeah, there was the uh, the one part of the scene where the justice, the outgoing justice, he calls him um, he calls him Mister Bartlett. Right. Bartlett corrects him, says it's actually Doctor Bartlett, which seems kind of petty and kind of like you know you can tell his egos. He's trying to salvage some of his um, his uh, his pride uh, and says like, well, let's just let's let's continue on with your let's get on with your uh, retirement, which seems kind of kind of a dismissive way, like whatever you say, but you're leaving. Yeah, but. But it does seem to affect him, uh, affect him later. Right. No, the Crouch, I guess, is the judge's name. Mm-hmm. That, that's how I understood them saying it. He actually gets his judge out of it. I was just thinking, you know, what is Bart? How does Bartlett gloat to Crouch that he did the right thing? You know, yeah, um, <laughs> does, does Crouch call him and apologize? I don't think he does. I, I don't think a guy like that calls and apologizes. So I think Bartlett just has to take satisfaction in thinking about uh the guy learning that he did did that thing um but it's uh interesting they brought up something um rishi i think brought it up that i had never connected to the show and it's a pretty famous uh, historical incident in the history of uh judicial nominations where they say um he said he thought this came from uh, the robert bork uh proceedings and you know bork was a Supreme Court nominee from Ronald Reagan in the mm-hmm. 80s um and he was um and he was a very uh outspoken originalist which fits with the plot here and the Democratic Congress uh, successfully thwarted his appointment to the Supreme Court and I thought that was it, it struck me as a true comparison and a very um interesting uh choice because the Bork incident is taken by conservatives as sort of one of the major moments of culture war where mm. um you know the the left basically came along and said you know we don't like your judicial philosophy this and it's it's accurate to the episode um you know your your originalism attitude you know is is contrary to roe and and other things yeah and so they, they kind of took him out um and and republicans look back at that as a very uh, political mo- when re- some people will say that's when the um judicial nominations to the supreme court really became politicized and so it was fascinating to me and, and it's, it struck me as correct that sorkin must have been basing this story a little bit on on the bork uh, character and that was just uh, a little bit surprising to me. Uh, you don't hear about Bork that much, except on in right wing um, legal yeah. circles. Well, and it, it, it sounds like, and this is the first time I'd, I'd heard of, um, that I'd heard of it, but it was a big enough deal that that it, it spawned. Um, uh, what would you call that? A neo neo 
neologism. I don't think I've ever said that word out loud. Where sure. uh, the the slang uh, the slang borked, <laughs> right? Uh, came out of it where if somebody yeah. get, gets borked, uh, and I think it uh, they play a clip of an interview where uh, the interview asks makes bork define what it means to be uh, borked, which he said was just treated unfairly. Uh, but yeah, uh, it, it's I was gonna say it's a fortunate name because it lends itself to to being um, slangified. No, it's kind of a bummer. You're born with that name, and you're hoping it's the name of a Supreme Court justice, and it turns out that instead you're meant to create a new category of yeah. political, uh, you know, political bad, you know, bad faith. Um, and so, yeah, he uh, he's a he's a very um, prominent figure in uh, like conservative uh, legal intelligentsia. Uh, they, they think of him as a really great scholar who got you know his. Uh, seat stolen from him. Um, and then I think Clayne later in this episode talked about Merrick Garland. So the right came back and stole one back. Uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, I forgot about, uh, I forgot about Garland. Uh, no, that was recent enough. I think I, I remember that. Uh, they do, uh, bring up speaking of, um, uh, you know, getting information that, uh, maybe we didn't have earlier. Uh, Rishi and Josh do bring up that they get a little bit of, uh, exposition in that conversation between the justice um, and uh, the president, um, for example, the previous uh, president was Republican, must have been Republican because uh, clearly uh, the justice was trying to hang on for right. a Democrat of some sort. Uh, and then also the, um, we get a little bit more information about Bartlett um, kind of coming out of nowhere in the primary. I don't think, uh, I think he, the, um, the justice calls it uh, an insurgency. Uh, that Bartlett did in the in the primary, and again they kind of like um, bring up again how he has low approval numbers, and maybe that's why Bartlett isn't taking more political risks. Do you think I was wanted to ask you because um, you were talking about how Bartlett, uh, you know, trying to uh, needing to learn from mistakes, and how Sorkin kind of sets that up uh, in in the stories. What do you think that's the do you think that's the mistake that Bartlett is making that he's not? kind of sticking to his values. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. I think you're totally right. Um, that I think that that's a major ongoing theme. Um, Bartlett tends to hew towards safety and, and, and a degree of centrism when things get difficult. And over the course of the show, it's going to be suggested, and once again, Toby's going to throw it in his face, mm. that this comes from his father abusing him as a child, and so he learned a degree of, like, pleasing people. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think you're right. That's fundamentally the challenge for him and why he gravitates in that other direction. The one thing I bump on in the description there is the idea of Bartlett's campaign as kind of an insurgency. Mm. And um, – the show connects him to like the Bernie Sanders movement, which mm -hmm. makes sense. So I can imagine an insurgency and you could, and, and that part, it kind of makes sense because an economics professor is not a typical uh, presidential candidate, but um, you know, he might have radical theories. Mm. Bartlett never, Bartlett always sort of seems like a very mainstream kind of guy, right? Like he never acts like a revolutionary or talks like a revolutionary. So the idea that he campaigned as a far left kind of character never made a lot of sense to me. But uh, but the show always shows him wrestling. And, and that must be an, uh, maybe that's a theme, um, you know, probably for everybody, maybe in great literature. But, you know, doing the thing that you feel 
uh, called to or you really believe in versus the thing that's going to make it easier for you in your day-to-day life with the polling numbers and with the hostile Congress and et cetera, right? We yeah. all, we, we make compromises and step away from our values. And, and your so legacy, I, right? Yeah, no, it's, so it's a neat, I, I, I like that theme. It seems true to presidents and also just to human nature. Yeah. Well, and it makes it all the more satisfying. It's, it's kind of this thread that doesn't get, um, well, I don't feel like it kind of gets hammered all the time. It just, it, we just get, we can just keep getting nods towards it. They're not quite doing what they really want to do. Uh, yeah. But it becomes more satisfying when it gets to, uh, there's a la- the later episode where it's it's not quite as cringy as uh, Who Demand, but when during the debate, when everybody says, game on, and another yeah. character will say, game on. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I like that part. And, and that part, you know, that whole thing, let Bartlett be Bartlett that comes out later, I, yeah. I think is uh, a good thing. I, I vaguely suspect, because I've heard this in a few interviews with former real presidents, that almost the first thing that hits you when you become president is exactly how little you can accomplish yeah. uh, compared to what, you know, you, you were just promising that you were going to make America a better place. And now you show up and you're just immediately struck by the massive limitations on what you can cause uh, to have happen. And if anything, I think the show underplays how difficult it would be for a president to come in and, and, you know, meet the reality of what you can actually do. And then how do you, you know, how do you be a, a rabble rouser from, from inside this giant bureaucracy? How do you be a, a um, how do you be the rabble rouser when you're, when you're actually part of the system? Yeah, that too. That too. Yeah. Uh, they do give some praise to uh, almost as Mendoza. Uh, not a lot of lines. Oh. Huge impact. Which, I mean, he he doesn't have to say uh, a lot. And they they bring up um, they bring up his turn in um, as um, Adama in uh, Battlestar Galactica. Did you ever see that? Oh, I loved it. Well, they started calling him Adama, and I was really happy yes. about that because uh, <laughs> you know I always. I don't think anybody doesn't like Edward James almost. I mean, what was, didn't he do, did he do like a high school movie? I mean, he was a significant actor, even in my youth. I'm trying to remember what his roles were. He, he, he's been, he's one of those guys where you're like, oh, hey, it's him. Uh, he was in, I know he was in Blade Runner and oh, he was, right. yeah. And I want to say he was in a, uh, oh my goodness. Was that him in um, Lean On Me? No, not Lean On Me. Um, yes, he was a teacher and he was teaching, right? yeah, he was teaching, uh, Blue Diamond Film, uh, Phillips was in it. Yeah, good, good. Okay. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't. That was no, fantastic. Yeah. So I think he was already sort of in my mind and then Adama was fantastic. No, I, um, Battlestar Galactica, the updated version was, um, you know, it was, it was up there with the West Wing for me as, as a kind of a, a great show. Um, I don't know where that one migrated to. I used to rewatch it as well as the West Wing. Mm-hmm. Melina talks about how he didn't like that theoretical question about the constitutionality of uh, privacy or the original. He didn't. It, it wasn't that. Um, it was that that was the deciding factor for Mendoza over Harrison. Oh, right. Which he which he didn't uh, love. Which uh, I mean, maybe that's that really wasn't the thing. Maybe it was because it was um, it was almost uh, you know uh, Edward Edward James, right? Right. Yeah. Maybe it was the fact that it was Edward James almost actually that really tipped them over the edge. There's more to be said about that than uh, you might think that who says it 
does matter. Nevertheless, I would also just scroll back. This was once again where Melina's doing his Tempest in a Teapot thing, where, okay, okay, there's some factual things that may not line up. The big point here is um, a Democratic administration just found out that their Supreme Court nominee doesn't believe in a privacy right. And he's, I mean, and he's confirmed that for them. They're not, they're not putting him on a, on a bus. That's another favorite line of mine from this episode from uh, Sam Seaborn. Put him on a bus, he says about the guy um, once they interview him. It's not because of his ruling on employment law. It's because like he showed that he was not their kind of guy and almost showed him that. So, so Melina spent some time breaking down why <laughs> – why why the legal outcome would have been the same regardless of Peyton Cabot Harrison the third or um Mendoza. Uh but he I think he's missing the point, um, which is you know, they they, they basically found out that um their original guy was a heretic. And so <laughs> he I mean he really he really cannot even be around any anymore. Uh and and that's all there has to do with it. They, they you know, a good question is how can you possibly have just figured this out? They raised that as well. I think I think Rishi is talking about how Sam says he's read everything this guy's written. You know, there's no way this inclination wouldn't come out elsewhere. And he's definitely correct about that. Like, you wouldn't just have this one paper, you know, anonymously in the background where you're like, I don't believe in abortion. And then everything else is like, but I'm totally a good liberal everywhere right, else. Right. That doesn't that doesn't really happen. You know, uh, I, I I think maybe inside Melina um, agrees with you, because uh, as soon as he, <laughs> he, he makes that point, and then Rishi, all he says is, that's interesting. And Melina immediately <laughs> yes. goes like, oh, well, I could be wrong. Uh, maybe yeah. not. He, it's, so, it's so funny to me, because on, um, on Twitter, he is just so uh, brutal um, and relentless. He, right. uh, he will respond <laughs> to every, and to anybody who says, you know, uh, you know, uh, Josh, uh, you're an idiot for saying this thing. He will respond to each and every person. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, uh, in, in some uh, some way, shape, or form. But here with his friend uh, Rishi, that's interesting. Ah, uh, yeah, I could be wrong. Maybe not. Maybe not. Well, that shows you know, and I like that, and that can work on me as well. You know, you make a big blustery argument, and the that is interesting, can really shake <laughs> you, right? I mean... If well, you, and especially if it's from someone you respect, right? Totally, yeah. totally. Even if it's not, you know, it's funny, even if it's someone you don't respect uh, that much, you've, I'm sure you've heard this one, that the best way to rattle somebody in a social situation is to go up to somebody you know and introduce yourself as if you don't know them. And that makes them think like, oh, they forgot me. Um, and so I uh, yeah, I, I think it may work. But no, I appreciate it because I think uh, I agree. Like to me, it feels like Rishi sometimes essentially just um, is dismissing <laughs> what what Melina said, or at least it, it reads that way. And Melina responds. And so um, I, uh, I understood Melina's point. But no, I, I don't think I don't think there's any real debate in the show about who should be the judge at the end of the show. Right. No, I, I don't think there's a doubt in anybody's uh, mind, oh. or at least who, who we're supposed to think, anyway. But Melina's bit about Adama, meaning Earth, that was, <laughs> a nice, that was a nice little connection. I mean, it immediately kind of makes sense to your ear, right, when you connect it to Adam. Um, right. Uh, but uh, that was a, you know, I know Melina likes to get into the Hebrew and stuff like that, and so that, I appreciated him fishing. I didn't, I never thought about that. I never, I never thought about Adama being like Adam. So that's really that was good. Uh, again, I'm I'm here for all of the the word wrangling. Yeah. Something else that Melina didn't didn't really appreciate was the 
uh, what he calls the plaintive oboe, which which is a phrase that keeps coming up in later episodes, because uh, and it's over uh, or it's under Sam's uh, speech about uh, privacy, and you talk about how prescient that was, how important it was, um, you know, barring the um, barring the declaration that the internet is is not a fad in a previous episode, right. uh, in this episode, Sam's like, hey, between like you know smartphones and the internet and and this and that, uh, privacy is super uh, important. Uh, but it, and it would have been a strong enough speech on its own, Lena thought, without the, without the music coming in and letting you know how you were supposed to feel about this. Yeah, I really disagreed with both of them on this thing about. But I love their phrase "plaintive oboe." I'm gonna, I'm gonna accommodate or appropriate that. But um, I thought it was a fairly dull statement about the future of privacy and its significance. And the reason for the plaintive oboe is to dress it up and make you feel like Sam saying something really big. And he's trying to, you know, he's like, Hey, in a country born on freedom, what could be more fundamental than, you know, your right to privacy. Um, I like, it would be, you know, if I was making a right wing version, it would be like the future. It's going to be about freedom. <laughs> and it's going to be about elections and it's going to be at our, about our civil rights. And then, you know, in 20 years, somebody picked it up. was like, holy moly, we're oh dealing, we're dealing with those things. So I think all those issues they brought up, like, it's not untrue that privacy isn't a significant issue. Um, but you know, your cell phone data, like, I think all that stuff was already on the table in the late nineties. So I don't think it was like a big, I don't think Sam Seaborn was prophesying. Um, I think he was reading, I think he was reading the New York times. Like we all knew data was going to be, um, an issue. What, you know, what they don't talk about is, uh, in the show. And to me, this is so the non-prescience, the world that they didn't foresee was at least for me, I'm not really concerned about data in relation to the government, I mean, I might if the government was trying to get a bunch of data from me. Who were we concerned about our data with? It's big companies, right? right. It's, big. it's corporations. So it's you know it's true data is an issue, but it's it's a slightly different um, issue, and the Constitution doesn't protect us from corporations. So anyway, it's a that's why I like sci-fi. You know, you, you kind of get to bend things in that direction. Well, you know, uh, this did happen. They recorded this episode in. 2016, I believe it is. I keep losing my uh, my uh, track of time. I believe this, uh, but this was post Patriot Patriot Act, so I think that's still fresh on their minds. There was this big thing where um, Apple uh, refused to, you know, give up information on these uh, on these two people to to the government. So that's so this is what happens, right? I mean, you, you hear a thing and it happens to relate. Like I could be watching a Simpsons episode a few years ago and be like, oh my goodness, they predicted that Donald Trump was going to be the president. I don't, yeah, I haven't read into the Simpsons predictive abilities. I mean, except that I know that they exist. Uh, there's these uh, things that the Simpsons predict and obviously Trump um, being one of them. Yeah. So I think it may be some of that. Um, and you no, know, I think they are, uh, they are real issues. I, I think it actually shows a little bit, the filtering mechanism, because when I, you know, you use to read history. So it was interesting to me that to them, that was such a spot on read. And again, <laughs> you know, uh, but, it, but to, to show that the show is even incorrect. Um, Sam, at one point in the debate says, it's not about abortion. Um, 
you know, it's about all this other stuff, uh, who's gay and who's not, and this mm-hmm. other this other stuff. And well, fast forward to today, and it's like, no, it's yeah. it's about abortion. Like yeah. it's that, like you know, the abortion piece is going to be big, and you guys are going to be really mad about what happens down the road. So you better get uh, you better get Mendoza and a few others like him on the bench. Uh, hey, this is the uh, the first episode that the goldfish shows up in the mm. the West Wing. Good uh, stuff. Yeah, which is a, uh, it's great to kind of like see those things again because they're such a um, staple of the uh, of the show, uh, and you get to see oh this is where where it uh, where it happens. Uh, now Molina points out that in the real world, uh, gold the goldfish would not be alive by the next episode, uh, <laughs> which uh, my experience has been actually that they will die when you don't want them to, uh, and then <laughs> they'll live when you right. wish them to die. <laughs> uh a death i had uh i have to tell you i still have this we, uh, we still have this fish i'm the only one who takes care of it uh i don't want to take care of it anymore i would like it to die don't tell my family but i do not feed that fish like uh when my wife asks right have you fed the fish i say yes but i have not fed the fish mm. So and this and this is why so, uh, previous uh, we had other fish. A lot of them were dying. Um, again, I'm the only one taking care of the uh, of the of this lone fish. I don't right. feed him. I don't clean the tank. Uh, okay. It is a mess. This guy will not die. And so I I decide. You know what? This is now my fish. He oh. I've tried to kill him. I see. He has lived. I will name him Sergeant Major for his bravery. Uh, Bravery and, uh, yes. Survival skills, yeah. Uh, and I will now take care of this fish. Uh, so, and, then, and then we decide to add more fish to, to this guy, because he must be lonely. Uh-huh. And, and, and the other fish ate, ate Sergeant Major. Oh, and man. I, it, hmm. it broke my heart a little bit. Yeah, that's and so brutal. I, I, can't, I can't be attached to this new fish. I, he, he will not die, but I'm not going to get sucked in again uh, emotionally. Well, so what was Sergeant Major eating back when you weren't feeding him? That's I really I really need to know. I I don't know if he was eating anything, uh, well, or that... maybe the the few times that maybe my wife would uh, feed him. Then. Oh, maybe yeah. somebody was sneaking him. Yeah, that's a good story though. I like that story. I I I I would like a short story about Sergeant Major and like his life and what he learned and went through. That was that was good. I I still have a fond affection for for Sergeant Major, but. Uh... His, uh, his place in my heart will not be usurped by, by this pretender that's in my house right now. Uh, hey, there's, a, there's this like, little mini scene between Charlie and, uh, and Harrison. Right. Uh, and they don't know what to do with it. I mean, they like it well enough, uh, but, but Rishi and, and Melina aren't sure what it's about. And, and in case you guys haven't seen it in a bit, it's, uh, um, they're just, uh, Charlie's just kind of taking care of Harrison, just kind of waiting on him. And Harrison recognizes Charlie, but is not sure where. And it turns out, oh, it was from the country club Charlie used to caddy at. Uh, right. And that's it. I'll go get your coffee. And that's the end of the scene. Yes. It's always been a little bit of a strange scene. So I think it's just one of those things that turned out not quite right for some reason. However, on this time through, I have come up with an interpretation and I think it, it works okay, and it, it helps having done this listen through of uh, West Wing Weekly, um, where uh, Dulé, um said that his 
script notes said that his position is to be able to see the kingdom but never go inside of it. Mm. And I thought this little backstory was extremely consistent with that. You know, so Dulé actually, Charlie Young, was rubbing shoulders with a guy who's going to be a Supreme Court justice. And so, you know, to the point where he remembers them and they obviously had a warm enough you know, association in that in that context. But he was, you know, the caddy and this other guy was going this other direction. So I think that uh, that piece was just nice backstory. Um, and then I think it also shows that Harrison is not a man of the people. Um, the first thing he does to me, which is one of the strangest things, is Charlie. Uh, first, he says, Charlie, you can leave. And then Charlie says, they asked me to wait. Would you like me to wait outside? And Harrison says, yes, um, and, and could you get me a coffee? And it's fine, but I just thought that's, you know, it's a certain class almost of person sure. would think it's appropriate for me to dismiss the help because it'll make me more comfortable. Like, wouldn't you, if you were in that situation and the guy said, oh, I can wait outside, you would say, oh, no, no, no. No, no, no probably, big deal. Yeah. You'd start chatting with him, right? And say, oh, tell me, you know. Tell me what you do, or or at least I wouldn't ask him to leave the room. Right. Well, and and uh, I could see I can't see Bartlett telling him like, yeah, no, go ahead and leave the room. No, Bartlett's going to chat him up uh, as well. Yeah, and so I thought I felt like it was like kind of an insight into this relationship between somebody at the top of the social pyramid and Charlie's role, where he's kind of um, coming from outside the kingdom. So that's as much as I took it as otherwise. But I do think it it, it fits in awkwardly. But but it's a nice it's kind of a nice scene. And so and I think Melina alluded to that like. Sometimes you never know what happened at the end of the day. I mean, they even suggested, you know, Dulé's here on contract. Like, <laughs> let's give him something to do. And I think, no, um, I think that kind of thing happens. Like when you're, say, you're playing a musical show. Like, does something ever just get shoehorned in, and then later you're like, yeah, that I wouldn't have played that. I won't play that again. But we did it tonight. Yeah, I, but we needed something to uh, to fill, which I think is. Um... Yeah, that's the other thing that Molina suggests. Uh, the, maybe the uh, the episode was a little short. Uh, they, needed, <laughs> right. they needed more material, and yeah, yeah and we have Dulé. We're paying him money. Let's uh, get him to to do something. I, I do feel like whenever I watch that scene, I always I always kind of tense up because I'm like, oh, this is where we're gonna kind of show his um, you know classism or racism yeah. or something like that, um, uh, and his uh, distance. Uh, Rishi kind of I guess read it a different way. He said like, oh no, it's kind of actually. He recognized him. He did. He did see him. He just couldn't re uh, quite uh, quite place him, which is a lot. Uh, uh, it's a more gracious uh, view of that. But I like your your take on it, which is like it's another view of of Charlie uh, being on the outside of the castle, but now inside. Yes, although Rishi's interpretation was a great example of what um, always struck me, and I've always enjoyed about uh, West Wing Weekly is I never thought of that interpretation. But once he says it, I don't see anything about the scene to refute it. Actually, I would only say this. The only thing that, so, uh, which is, Hey, this is like, this guy's almost a Supreme court justice. He's pretty high. Like he's, he's way up there. And he, and he remembers the kid who caddied for him. And so he's, 
normal-ish. You know, he's <laughs> like he's got a he's got a layer of human being in there, and we can um, appreciate that. So I I never thought about that being the purpose of the scene. Um, the tone of the scene doesn't really match that, right? Like. You could yeah. show him being a you know a, a relaxed guy, and, and there's something about the, the the tone feels like you're gonna reveal his secret history of racism, like that's what it feels right. like, and then nothing like that happens, and so it's very interesting. Uh, no, you 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 and this show have been making me think more lately as well about how how simply the way a scene is produced gives it a vibe that may or may not line up with the dialogue um, itself. And and this is one that's kind of like that, where the dialogue is fine, but you feel something else lurking in the scene. Well, and, it, you know, I, I forget, um, I forgot about the moment where he, he asked him to leave to go get a coffee, which is funny, because that's like, there's not a lot of lines in that uh, scene. And actually that view that you, that you had kind of supports uh, Rishi's kind of take on Harrison, just in general. Sure. Like, I, I think Melina and, and, and Rishi, like, uh, Harrison just fine, right? Uh, and I think they liked that he didn't that he wasn't um, kind of demonized uh, yes. as like this really bad guy. They just didn't agree with his uh, philosophy. Uh, <laughs> and Rishi calls it um, uh, like a product of his pri privileged life that, oh, right. that his philosophy uh, kind of comes uh, from that. Uh, he says, um, "If the system works for you, then to you the system works." And so why? Sure. Yeah, why would you? Why would you not be an originalist? Yeah, that was a super interesting take on the privacy question. And once again, um, you know, a thought from a different angle. Like I, I'm inferring into what Rishi said, but he talked about how if privacy has never been a problem for you. And so you think about, um, you know, people of color having experiences with the police. Mm -hmm. Which um, Peyton Cabot the Harrison, uh, Peyton Cabot Harrison the third, has never had, right? Like he's never, you know, if the police ever pulled him over, they probably said, you know, this is you're you're getting away with a warning and drive, you know, more carefully next great, time. Great judge. rest of the night, yeah, yeah. And so that's a interesting, like like a this subjective view of a topic, which I mean, there's a, a reality to that, right? Like privacy means something different. To somebody else, and so if if your privacy's never been invaded in <laughs> noticeable ways, then your philosophy of privacy may be much more abstract. And that's actually that's the typical criticism of originalism. So yeah, it, it was an interesting that that it's it's detached from reality and ends up serving mm. somebody else's agenda in that detachment. So yeah, like you're from the country club, and like at the country club. Everybody gives you all the privacy you want. Like you are completely used to a servant class who you can literally say, would you leave the room? I would like some privacy. And so for you, you've never really thought about, I need greater privacy protections. Interesting idea. Yeah, no, it, uh, it really is. I want to talk a bit more about that, perhaps, and a big block of cheese. Yeah, maybe we'll get to that. Uh, did you talk a, a bit more about Mandy? Um, she's the one that kind of, uh, Josh actually asked some advice, uh, from her earlier on. Uh, and it sounds like the, it sounds like they've been having a good conversation. They being, um, uh, Rishi and Melina having a good conversation with, uh, with their listeners, um, in the website comments. Um, and I think they're, they're surmising it's maybe because the, maybe the reason why people are not warming up to Mandy or haven't warmed up to Mandy is because she's all about the optics. 
Uh, she says to, of Mendoza that, yeah, sure, he'd make a great um, justice, but he's a, a lousy nominee. Well, you know who they need instead of Mandy is, um, I was going to say Don Draper, but that would be a uh. move in the wrong direction. Um, but they've got Peggy Olson down the hall already. Indeed. So, you know, somebody's got to think about the optics. And that was, the, they, they kind of backed into a Very defense good. of Mandy a little bit later that, um, that's why that's your job. And, you know, and you could see actually why it might, it would, it would be and is somebody's job. You know, the rest of us have to think about other things. You think solely about this and work on that. But there's also the piece about it's not what you say and it's how you say it. Yeah. And uh, they, they, they seem pretty locked in on Mandy kind of rubbing people the wrong way. And so that seems true. I, I can't tell anymore. If Mandy's a bad character, and I've just <laughs> I've just decided to adopt her, like I I've adopted Mandy now, and I'm just like it is what it is. That's what you know. Yes, she's irritating, but she's making some points that you guys have to deal with, and you know, stop pointing out how annoying she is. That's you know, it's just kind of rude to keep going back to how she's bothering you. That's that's what Mandy does. The show acknowledges it openly. You know that Mandy is bothersome. Uh, I, I have noticed that you have uh, taken Mandy under your protection, um, right? Which I appreciate. Somebody, somebody should. And again, it's uh, you know, it's Moira Kelly. She's doing her job as a as an actress, and just you know, she's saying the words that she was supposed to say. Yeah, no, it's right. I mean, she definitely has. Like, if Mandy worked in your workspace. Half the people would not like Mandy. You know, there are people who would be like, yeah, like right. she's, you know, they would have sure. things to say about the way she carries herself. So I get that. But I like, you know, I just like that she always has something clever to say. So um, and, you know, she gives voice to this, uh, these pressures. I Like, I think one of the things that's so great about the West Wing as sort of a character is they're they're always under all these pressures, including internal pressures. You know, here's one more person who's like, no, you shouldn't do it that way because mm -hmm. it's going to be a disaster. And I'm like, oh my gosh, stop! Just let me run the country. <laughs> uh, right, uh, I know you're absolutely right. And in fact, um, after she goes, um, other people play that role uh, really. And maybe maybe it's because they're not part of the. The main crew, like Joey Lucas. Um... Oh, right, right. Joey Lucas. Yeah. So, no, I would, you know, if Mandy asked me as a friend for some personal uh, life coaching, I would say, you know, you catch more flies with honey and um, a little bit of, you know, actual charm would really work for you, I think. And so you should give that gear a try. That's my advice to the Mandys of the world. But, hey, you know, you're doing your thing and I think you do it pretty well. Uh, you know who they have. Uh, everyone always has a, a fond affection for is Ed and Larry. Uh, this is the. <laughs> this is actually the first episode uh, that Ed gets a name, uh, but Larry's not there. Uh, so, and basically, I mean, they they were just about to go into talking about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with their with their guest, but they had to bring up. Oh, but by the way, Ed shows up without Larry. Ed, I think he has like one line. Can you remember what were the words that Molina used to describe seeing Ed by himself? Rishi says it's a nose without nostrils. No, it's the um, Ed without Larry I found unsettling. Rishi laughs. And almost, almost nausea-inducing. Rishi laughs again. It just doesn't look right, sighs. I love Peter. Great actor. Great guy. It's just stutters it's like down is up left is right black is white but it was the whole i mean really it was it was a poem <laughs> of 
of sort of um, subjective, you know, negative feelings about seeing Ed by himself. And I just want to point out that there's a little bit of a habit of hitting at Asians. Um, Ed, you know, is an Asian guy. And Melina, you know, there was there was a big string of Asian jokes, and now seeing you know uh-huh. Ed by himself, you know, causes him nausea. Like like he's he's having a existential experience, wondering like what's going on. Like there's an Asian running around un unattended uh, in the White House. Unattended in the White House. Uh, so uh, we need a little um, a little white leavening from uh, from Larry to uh, to make him more palatable. Is that that's what you're saying. I think that's. I just realized, you know, a lot, it's funny because like a lot of Asians pair up with a Caucasian, like that's uh, not unusual matchup at all. And so, yeah, like well, I think that that seems to be. Well, you always need at least one white guy. It's, I feel like I don't know. Like I, I feel like I may have just seen, you know, part of the Matrix where you're like, oh yeah, you gotta Asians are okay as long as they're accompanied by a white. That's kind of the message. Oh man. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, great. Uh, well, hey the. Uh, they take a little break and they um, they come back with Ron Klain, who apparently is still a mover and a shaker uh, in in politics. Uh, as I said, he was chief of staff to uh, Biden when he was vice president, and apparently the chief of staff now uh, to, uh, for for Biden. I was really I really liked Ron Klain. Um, he reminded me of a, a type of political operative who you know just seemed. Somewhat down to earth, but also really smart. Um, even just the way that he came in and interacted with this episode, as you know, as as an episode of The West Wing, like he was totally on the ball with this show. And then he's like, "Oh yeah," and then I'm going to go back and run the White House. Like, yeah. there's this class of um, Democrats who do, I think, act a little bit like the West Wing people. Like they're kind of they're kind of Renaissance people, and um, you know, they can talk about a show and then they can you know go run the White House. I mean, it is funny because i he seemed like such a nice guy and it does seem like it must be hard to be running the biden white house right now but nevertheless uh maybe he's having a good time doing it i'm I'm sure he's having a a great time uh and apparently because they ask him um which one of the characters do you think uh you're more like um uh, and he says well you know i think everybody who worked in the white house thought they were some combination of of Sam and Josh. And this, I mean, and I think it romanticized the work in the White House so much. I think if you ended up working uh, for the government, you kind of tried to model your, you wanted to be more uh, like, uh, like the Renaissance men that they are. Yes. No, it, it, I mean, gosh, you know, the chief of staff like is uh, knows this show and takes these characters uh, seriously. And, you know, this is art at that level where it kind of helps shape the national character a little bit in that I think everybody sees that and thinks there's something admirable in how these characters conduct themselves as they pursue the common good, uh, you know, uh, in their political positions. So, as I said, I, uh, I get my a lot of my American history, apparently, from this uh, from this podcast and from the, the West Wing. Like, I didn't know and which Ron Klain uh, brought up. I didn't realize that Cuomo was on the short list. Uh, for a Supreme Court justice uh, uh, under the Clinton uh, administration. Did he say Cuomo? Like, didn't he say Cuomo? Yes. No, Cuomo. Uh, Mario Cuomo. I heard it. It was funny. There was a name that kind of didn't, I don't know, I didn't catch. So there were subsequent names that were 
uh, more interesting, but um, Bork. If that's <laughs> Cuomo, um, and because there is an older one too. I'm thinking of the younger, uh, you know, the the former New York governor. But I believe his father was also. There's Mario Cuomo, who was uh, during the yeah. 80s. So I think it might be Mario. Is that who you're thinking of? I, I'm just trying to figure out who this would be. Mario Cuomo. He was he was the governor of New York. Uh, in from the eighties right. into the nineties, so this maybe this is the guy that you're thinking of, which is again, I and maybe maybe you're having the same reaction that that I did, which was, wasn't he the governor and he was apparently they wanted to tap him for uh, Supreme Court justice. I think he ended up declining, like uh, he he ended up yeah, so like, he never really got there. He was never nominated, uh, but I think they did want him, and um, part of him kind of ducking out at the last minute was how they got uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, I think he I think they definitely uh, I think he definitely saw that there was a, some sort of uh parallel because again um the uh Justice White who again like I don't even recognize that name, but Justice White uh retired unexpectedly. I think they were expecting him to retire at the end of the session. Uh he he retired early and uh, apparently, I mean, they had been working on, Klain and some other folks were, had been working on a list uh, of, of possible folks uh, to to replace him. Uh, but then he retired suddenly and they didn't have time to make a short list. They just had this long list. And I guess that's the one that they gave to uh, uh, to Clinton. And they were looking at Cuomo, but again, he didn't uh, he didn't want it. I always thought the funnest thing to do in these political positions would be to, you know, make make one of these lists like. You know these these short these short lists that kind of get leaked out before somebody gets nominated for something. It would be it would be fun to sit around in a room and say, "All right, who are the who are the ten people that we want, and we're going to put on this list and go hand to the president and see um, who he." That that sounds like the funnest part of politics uh, <laughs> to me. Uh, usually, when I have a uh, when I have to give somebody a choice of things. Um... There's usually one that I feel like this is the right one, whether they're trying to pick a song for, for their wedding. I've done a couple of uh, weddings. Uh, or if I was doing some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of graphic design or something like that, some kind of creative choice. Uh, I've done some, like, copywriting. And again, I'm like, I've given some people some choices, like, oh, uh, I have a special uh, title that I came, uh, came up with. There's one that's like, well, this would be great, but it's already taken. Uh, there's one that's terrible. Uh, and there's one that's <laughs> Nice. And so this is how you would get your Supreme Court justice through? A very short list. Right, yeah. of three. Uh, yeah, Cuomo would be there. He'd be great, uh, but he's since passed on. Uh, <laughs> so definitely not him. Uh, wouldn't it be great if we could get um, um, uh, Commander Adama? Uh, but there's no way that could possibly happen. Uh, you know who would be great? Uh, uh, Garland. Very nice. Um, I, I, it was interesting to hear, and it makes sense, that... Um, RBG didn't like being handled, which, you know, I, I think they did a nice job of capturing and the personas of these mm. these judges. You know, these are people with substantial autonomy and power and, and other and credentials. And, you know, they, they, they point that out. And so then uh, going to them and saying, here are your three options. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why don't you do you want to say it the right way? or your way or or this other this other thing and so yeah it sounds like a really um the the process has changed uh, a a great deal because clain said that rbg got through 96 to 3 or something 
Right. And, and the thing is, uh, someone like uh, uh, Bader Ginsburg uh, would see through my um, completely <laughs> transparent, you know, ham-handed uh, manipulations. Uh, and, and and I think she she handled it the way that she was supposed to handle it um, and apparently did a, a great job, which makes me want to kind of get highlights of the uh, of the um, body column hearings. Um, yeah, confirmation the, hearings. Yeah, uh, I would love to. I want to hear more of the highlights of the uh, the confirmation hearings. You know, they can be good, uh, depending on what level of discussion the judges are allowed to get into. All of the people who come up before the Supreme Court, with maybe one recent historical exception, but almost all of them, including certainly RPG, are extremely brilliant lawyers, and so it's quite interesting to hear them talk about any topic that they're given a serious opportunity to opine on there's a there's a lot of uh there's a lot to be you know thought through and um talked through and i'm sure rbg did well um she had a really phenomenal uh, you know origin story um herself and uh, i won't go into it all now but uh, you know she she seems like somebody who was kind of meant to be on the supreme court and it's interesting to learn that she was you know the third choice and so what if Cuomo had become that justice? Maybe she would have come around on another pass, but mm-hmm. maybe maybe not. And this whole history of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wouldn't be known at all. It'd be the history of this other guy, Cuomo. And I think, you know, I think almost everybody, I, I, I think you could get a very high percentage of agreement that people were like, yeah, I prefer RBG to Cuomo at this point. I, I think we just like that name better. Well... I mean, she may not have been the first choice. Right. But she was the last one. And she was the right one. Precisely. Precisely. Uh, we're going to take a we're going to take a little break and when we come back, we're going to come back with our big block of cheese. So, come join us. I don't know if you know this, Kenny, but Andrew Jackson in the main foyer of his White House had a big block of cheese that was given to him as a, as a gift. And it was there for any and all who might be hungry. Um, and I was wondering, uh, you must have some sort of a cheese of indeterminate size to share with us, right? I do have a very rich, cheesy topic that um, was brought up by this episode. This episode is, I have a lot of favorite episodes, but this is one of my favorites, the short list from the West Wing. It's super law school nerdy. It's it's very uh-huh. focused on topics that you are learning about in your first year of law school. And so um I and I I would watch it back then when I was in law school to give me a little inspiration. And so they they do a nice job of framing this pretty interesting debate about how to interpret the constitution. You know the uh, the general outline. You know between Sam Seaborn and Peyton Cabot Harrison the third is um, uh, Harrison's position is that the Constitution doesn't say anything about privacy, and that's true. You know if you if you word search the Constitution, you will not find the word privacy. Sam comes back and says a variety of things, including well, you've got the idea of privacy living in these other. Uh, these other amendments. Plus, mm-hmm. 
if you go back and read historical records, you've got the state of Delaware saying, you're an idiot if you think that the only rights are those enumerated in the Constitution. So um, Harrison says, are you calling me an idiot? I'm very good at my job. <laughs> and, 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 that's, um, and that's, you know, roughly the debate. Harrison's going to come back. Oh, oh, no, and actually I'll give, you know, Harrison fleshes out this nice point. He says to Toby, he says, of course there are other laws and other rights beyond what are in the Constitution. I'm just saying that as a federal judge, I'm not empowered to enforce those rights. So that's, you know, th th this this debate goes by a variety of names, but they, you know, we get the, this word originalism, you know, that kind of represents the the Harrison position that the the rights that you should have under the U.S. Constitution are spelled out. You know, they're the rights that are written down. And if they're not written down, then there's no such rights. Um, and then, you know, the counter argument usually tends to be it's interesting. It's it's the way that Rishi puts it a little bit and, and the way that it's sort of uh, often put is a case comes before a court where you think the court really should do something to intervene in a, in a situation that requires some intervention. And um, the Constitution may not directly address it, but you say, hey, there, there's something in the Constitution like this. You know, there's there's some idea of privacy. You know, Sam Seaborn says, you know, privacy exists in these other places. And, uh, you know, a, a new one occurred to me today in the privacy front, and it's more right-wingy. But um, even, you know, the, the freedom of religion um, certainly has significant privacy ideas inside. If, if the government said you can have your church service, but we need to monitor it, I think a lot of religious people would say, no, absolutely not. And they say, well, hey, so, some of you are suicide bombers. And they say, no, no, you, you're not allowed, right? And so anyway, that's the, the frame of the debate. And I was interested to hear um, what what you think of it. You know, do you, this should, should, should a Supreme Court judge like Harrison or, or maybe any judge um, should they be looking strictly at the Constitution, or would you want them to be expanding it, you know, to meet important social needs? Yes. No, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's uh, that, that is such uh, a, a complicated uh, question. But this is something you get wrapped up in. in uh, you can wrap up in like a semester of law school, right? I mean, you get the answer by the end. Oh, no. Right. No, there's there's uh, there there are full on major scholars who take all sides of this issue. So you can actually the nice thing here, if you're not a legal scholar, is you can probably go with your gut. And there's somebody who went to Yale who agrees with you um, and has written a long <laughs> article spelling out why why that's why that's true. So my, my first thought is, um, you know, the amendments or the Bill of Rights were there to to um, kind of enumerate specific rights. Let's just be sure that these things have been promised and they're, they're clearly uh, promised to, uh, to, to people, um, but it didn't necessarily mean it was exhaustive, right? It's not, uh, so I guess I, I'm falling on the, on the side of like, just because it's not expressly written uh, in the constitution doesn't necessarily mean it's, um, I was gonna say expressly forbidden, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not guaranteed, but I guess, and, and here's the other part of your question. So should um, uh, should judges, should the courts, uh, be the one who who are who who are the judges of what rights are actually rights and which ones aren't 
yeah. so much. That's it. No, you're you're exactly right. So that's the that's where one of the important places I think the debate comes down to is who gets to decide, uh, you know, what you might call a policy question um, about you know about privacy is should it be up to a judge to intervene um when uh, when when they don't like the policy outcome and so that's another place where you get a big debate so conservatives tend to say no that's for congress right the if you if you have something you don't like about the world around you then go get your congress to you know congress people to pass laws um the the more leftist position tends to be that judges at the end of the day aren't really different than congress people they're all appointed officials that we've put out there to work for the common good and so sometimes and it, and it's unrealistic to say every situation should be remedied by congress if you know anything about congress like congress uh, doesn't, um, you know, always do a good job of reconciling an issue. So, so the strongest exhibit for the, the, the more left-leaning argument, and here's actually the reality, is we're actually living in a reality of a much more left-leaning practice. So no, no, um, the law is not originalist. I mean, we've been finding new rights for a long time and there's like conservative ones and there's liberal ones. Um, but, uh, Brown versus Board of Education is probably exhibit A on the left side of, you know, the argument, which is, um, you know, in Brown versus Board of Education, they found that separate but equal violated the Constitution. And if you look at the Constitution, you know, a previous Supreme Court had said separate but equal was OK because the Constitution only requires um, equality. Uh, you know, it, it requires, you know, the governments treat its citizens equally. But it doesn't say it can't do so separately. And so then the Supreme Court came along and said, no, you know, separate but equal does violate the equal protection clause. That's not uh, that's not OK. And um, and I think but so so the argument is generally, well, do you like segregated schools? Because if you like segregated schools, you'll love originalism. Um, that's, you know, originalism wouldn't give you the tools to outlaw separate but equal. And so that's that's usually the, the strong starting point for the left on fighting originalism. So uh, recently, and I, I, man, there was a podcast, and I'll have to find it. Um, that uh, what I remember uh, hearing was that that was during the time where um, the the court was uh, pretty active in um, in uh, creating policy and creating rights and creating uh, in creating. Uh, laws, which uh, which my understanding was, like conservatives at the time were like, "Hey, this is this is a terrible idea," uh, but we got all these good things out of it, right? Um, you know, um, desegregation and other things. So I think people are okay with that as long as <laughs> it's stuff that we want. As as soon as it's stuff that we don't want, then we were like, "No, no, no, we need to go. We might. I think we need to be a little bit more original." Is yeah, that's a no. And you know it's funny. There was a time when I was younger that I thought, "Oh, it's it's all kind of hypocritical." Which is the left will the left will, uh, the left will happily use an originalist argument if it supports their case, and the right will absolutely use a pure policy argument to you know to win their case if that's the direction. You know, so the Merrick Garland case is a great example. Mitch McConnell said in the past. We've never appointed Supreme Court justices while, I don't know, a presidential election was about to happen. 
And it was one of those things where I think almost everybody, except probably the people who knew what he was doing, were like, what? Like, what? Is that... Is that even a thing? Um, and so, you know, you, you kind of make up your own um, process to get you, you know, you're, you don't care about originalism. That's not in the Constitution. You're just taking advantage. You know, you're taking um, political uh, advantage. And that used to bother me more. But now I realize that, like, that's exactly how law really happens. Even in a, in a, in a minor fender bender, both sides make all the arguments they can that support their outcome um and so anyway both sides yes can use the document in uh in in different ways at different times and, and there's a lot of water under the bridge um for what are called substantive due process rights or uh or fundamental rights because there's some very important fundamental rights that conservatives are super attached to like there's a the court uh back in the early 20th century found that parents had a fundamental right to educate their children. And, uh, you know, if you're if you're in church circles, you know that church people love homeschooling. Um, and, and so and so church people have an extremely strong constitutional argument uh, based on constitutional precedent. The Constitution doesn't say anywhere that they have a right to educate their kids. It's that the judge at some point said, yeah, that was definitely part of our history and tradition. And so we're going to give that one right. to you. Um, and so, you know, conservatives like that one. And so it, both sides take advantage of um, either unenumerated rights. So that's the you know one lawyerly way to refer to rights that aren't spelled out is unenumerated. You know, they're not enumerated. And so both sides, so we're, we've been doing unenumerated rights for well over a hundred years and nobody's giving back their unenumerated rights. So the reality is originalism is more of a, it's like almost more of an argumentation tactic, mm. but you know, it's to say, Hey, that's not what the founders meant um, at, at the time uh, when they wrote this. And you know, there's something to be said for that, right? Like the, the document probably meant something when it was written. And so you might go start with what that what that looks like. You know, law is not it's not really that hard. Like, you know, you've already gotten off into some great directions. You could go with the argument because that's so here's another. So if you believe in originalism, whose originalism like is Ben Franklin going to come out of the grave and tell me what he meant? Or is it going to be some conservative dude who wants his conservative outcome? He's going to tell me what originalism Means well, and then and also like me. Ben Franklin versus you know another another founding father, right? No, exactly. It's um so originalism has some real difficulties with uh with even identifying what its position should be, and that's why. So I think it's one of those things where your friends are all convinced. You know, there's there's a group of you who all think the same way, and you all find the originalism argument the most persuasive. Uh, you, you know, you brought up changing so, social conditions and stuff like that, and so that's a, so there's actually a, a, a there's a lot of different issues going on in the question, including like what's the role of a judge, and so so once again, um, you know, conservative the conservative standard on a judge is the judge is there to apply the law, and that's it. They shouldn't, you know, it's wrong. Like they'll actually, you know, it's it's beyond, you know, it's beyond their commission to do anything beyond apply the law. Whereas somebody else might say, um, you know, they are an important uh, part of how our society runs, and uh, the judge dispensing actual practical justice in real life is really critical uh, to real life, to real life outcomes and, and so on. And so we do actually want them to be like little mini legislatures. You know, here's another way to put it. Like 
you want to judge with good moral sense, right? Yes. Like, sure. Like, why why do you want to judge with good moral sense? Oh, well, because it's usually just just that person as opposed to, you know, what I mean, like as opposed to right. like a, a, you know, committee or a Congress where like, OK, well, if one person is uh, is a little bit uh, off um, or unwise or uh, or immoral, surely mm. the collection, you know, the collective mind, oh, uh, the yeah. collective will uh, will bear out something uh, more, you know, something moral and and uh, and wise. Yes, no, that's and a judge needs to have that capacity themselves because there's no um, correction. Um, it you know it just strikes me as like you've got all these complicated cases that come in front of them, and it's going to be their job to like decide what is what and to sort it all out. And so you've got to give them some leeway to uh, you know make make interpretations that they think are, are you know are going to apply to the situation and not um, be limited. Uh, necessarily to a strict um, interpretation of a document that maybe wasn't written for that situation. Um, And and so, you know, this judge is there on the ground. And so you vetted him, you know, this or her, you know, they've gone through all this stuff. And now do you want them to make a judgment call or do you want to, you know, kick it back to whatever you mean by um, originalism? Um, And so those are like, like there's some pretty good arguments um, against, Originalism, and I do think you know in real life judges um, tend to really want to have something uh, that they can live with come out of their cases. Mm-hmm. And so most judges, in my experience, are not dogmatically committed to the text that they are applying. Now it's always the starting point, you know. You always start with, hey, so-and-so broke the law. And so they read the law and they say, hey, is that clear or not? But it, but when it gets muddy, um, you know, it's that's what judges do is they say, you know, this has gotten muddy and I got to figure out what the right outcome here um, is. Most judges operate that way. Very few judges are willing to deal out like really harsh outcomes just based on, well, that's what the document says. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and is is one option also to, to uh, see a case and go like, well – this is not really something for me to decide. Well, oh, you bring it, you know, you bring up another great point. And that's actually another part of the debate that Harrison brings up. You know, I have there's to the say, question like, of you, the excitement on your face when I would respond, you're like, oh, we could go in so many different directions with what you just said. Uh, you're, you're, uh, cause you, uh, you, you, you were a, a law professor at, at some point in your life, right? Yeah. yeah. It's coming no, out, I, man. I, I was. I was, in fact, a legal academic and not even in this area. This is I'm just I'm just, you know, um, freelancing or moonlighting. I'm <laughs> moonlighting in other people's area. Uh, but it is it is kind of fun. Um, Rishi's response to it was that, you know, being an originalist when it came to privacy was a sign of privilege. It was interesting. like he didn't say it's intellectually bankrupt or it's wrong. He just, you know, he, he notices the social conditions that kind of lead to one position over the other. And that's just, you know, he, like, he doesn't say I disagree or agree with originalism. He just kind of thinks about how did you, how did you become an originalist? You know, it's, it's all that Princeton Exeter golfing at Sandy hook, you know, that that's what makes you an originalist, which is interesting. Like that, that I'd never thought about that idea before. Yeah, no, that was a that that was an interesting uh, take, and then in the conversations that we that we've just been having, yeah, I found that uh, kind of interesting. Like you said, he didn't say it was he necessarily disagreed with it, although I think he 
although I think he does. It was just, um, he just wanted him to check his privilege. Totally. And, you know, fair enough. Uh, that's a, an interesting start uh, to the conversation. Well, I think um, I have talked too much about legal theory tonight, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to pump the brakes. And I don't know if hearing me talk about legal theory, you know, uh, gets you in the mood to end this podcast, but uh, what, what do you want to do now? Uh, I'm, I'm ready to set fire to the room, man. Okay. Just saying. If you uh, want to find links of stuff that we uh, talked about, maybe I can get uh, Kenny to find us an article or two to talk about uh, that talks uh, cogently about originalism. Uh, you can find that at whatsnextweekly.com. Uh, if you just want to find us on Twitter and make comments, you can do that at Weekly What's Next, or you can find Kenny at Kenny Ching Six. And I am at I am Jay Skinny. Uh, tell us what you think uh, about uh, originalism, the Constitution, <laughs> a living document, um, or tell us uh, anything you like at all. 